The Born to Win podcast highlights individuals excelling at high levels in their purpose and calling. This podcast is for anyone looking to get ahead in life and willing to take action and reach their full potential. Using Champ's male mentoring model of the three E's, education, empowerment, and exposure, it means you too are born to win. Just from Chicago, be screaming all that. You are now tuned in to the Born to Win podcast, champion. You are tuning in to the Born to Win podcast show with Vondale Singles. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Born to Win podcast. I am Vondale Singleton, and I'm super excited about our next special guest um, from the south side of Chicago. During the pandemic, we wanted to pivot. And again, you know, I've said this on every episode. We have to have different perspectives to bring us knowledge and wisdom. I'm excited to introduce to some and to reintroduce to others. Arnie Duncan. That's right. You heard me. I said Arnie Duncan. Hi, I'm Arnie Duncan, the Secretary of Education. Education has been a lifelong passion calling for me. Uh, my mother started an inner city tutoring program before I was born. Along with my sister and brother, I grew up as a part of her program. And it was just an absolutely formative experience for me. And so many of the lessons I learned as a young child being a part of her program really shaped my educational philosophy. Um, so after I went to college, I played professional basketball in Australia for four years. Uh, came back to Chicago to run an education nonprofit called the Ariel Foundation. I ran an I Have a Dream program where for six years I worked with a group of students and their families to help those students prepare to go to college. I worked with them from sixth grade to twelfth grade. Uh, during that time I started a small public school from the outside called Ariel Community Academy. It's a very high performing neighborhood school still today in Chicago. And then ten years ago I joined the Chicago Public Schools and for the past seven and a half years I was the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools. Obviously, I care so deeply about and to work for the president. President Obama is just an extraordinary visionary around education. I've been lucky to, to work with him over the years and to call him a friend. And I think with his leadership, we have a chance to do something very, very special. But I've always followed him. And part of that had to do with my passion in becoming an educator um, straight out of college, going into the classroom. And I would hear his name. And I'm a, a CPS product. And uh, when he was the CEO of Chicago Public Schools, I believe in 2001, around that time. Um, you know, he definitely was on the front lines in making sure that his voice was was heard and was heard very loud. And then in, I believe, 2009, when President Obama came into office, of course, President O took him away from Chicago Public Schools and he served as a, a Secretary of Education for the United States Department of Education. And I don't know if you guys have seen him play basketball, but I have several times in person on TV, and he's an amazing um, basketball player, and we're going to talk a little bit about just kind of that journey, but I want to introduce the one and only, give it up for Arnie Duncan. Welcome to the Born to Win podcast. We're glad that you're here. How you feeling today? Thanks for having me. I'm not used to those guys' introductions. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. So you're doing well. How's everybody doing? Yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, we'll always be real, real. And um, our, our, my family's good. My family's safe. We're, we're laying low, but it's a, it's a really hard time. And 
Chicago, nationally around the planet. And, uh, you know, people say once in a generation, I think it's once in a century. And I hate that we're going through this. I hate what it's doing, you know, to our communities on the south and west sides. Um, we're all experiencing loss, taking, taking some real L's here. And um, we just have to keep working together, helping each other. And I hate that we have, I'm always, you know, people agree or disagree. I just, the, the lack of leadership coming from D.C. now is devastating. and just leading to more people dying. And, and that, for me, is um, it's breaking my heart. So we're all trying to step up and do lots of things and step into that leadership void. But this was going to be tough. It does not have to be, should not be this tough, should not be this hard. And we need good leaders. We need good leaders. So it's, it's a complicated, complex time. And we just have to get through it together. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It is a complicated time. And as I've been expressing, this is an opportunity too, where I believe those of us who have the opportunity to advance ourselves, to become the version 2.0 of ourselves, because the world as we know it, when we go back into society, will not be the same. And so we have to learn now what are the changes, where are the gaps that we have so that we can adapt um, and add value because there are a lot of people hurting. And I don't know if you heard, uh, Brother Arnie, but they, they mentioned that throughout this pandemic, we can expect uh, a mental health crisis leaving here. And so we have to be ready to be on the ground to figure out how do we become our brother's keeper and, and cover our communities as well. You know, that's exactly right. And we um, the work I'm doing now, sort of this violence reduction work with Chicago Cred on the south and west side. So one of the most important parts is we have an amazing clinical team that's working with guys who have, you know, we're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. It's not post, it's present, it's current, it's every day where our young men are dealing with. And now this is just layered on, on top of that. Yes. And so taking care of each other, taking care of our staffs, you know, taking care of the, the community, people who are, who are really hurting, um, mental health, you know, physical health, emotional health. We're doing a ton of food distribution now. There are a lot of people that were doing okay that are recently really hungry, really food insecure. And um, that's a whole different level of <laughs> stress. So we're all having to figure out new ways to, to try and serve, as you said, to, you know, just, just look out for each other, be, be our brother's keeper. Yeah. So, you know, uh, for those of you who don't understand, like, the importance of what Arnie mentioned with Chicago Create and the great work that they've done, um, I've had the privilege to work with Billy Moore quite a bit and some of the other brothers, Tony Woods and various other guys who are really, really on the ground, um, really providing uh, support for, for young men who made mistakes throughout their lives, um, just like all of us, right? Um, and they find themselves needing that extra support and love. And I've admired from a distance the great work that you're doing. And then also you know, how you've been vocal about uh, getting folks to look at the priorities of where we provide our resources and fight for and advocate for other organizations, just like Champs and others, um, to get more resources to help our young men navigate. Because it's very, very difficult, uh, especially when you get into certain situations where you have to pay your debts to society, um, whether it be incarceration or you lose your job or, you know, something happens where it puts you on a hard time. And uh, again, I love the great work that you guys do with Chicago Craig. Can you talk a little bit more about how Chicago Craig got started? Yeah, sure. And I guess some of the stuff comes from, uh, honestly, places of, of pain. And uh, you, you talked about, you know, basketball. We can get into that. But, you know, grew up playing on the south and west sides. And 
you know, 13, 14, 15 years old and had, you know, some guys that sort of, would, you know, frankly protect me and sort of give me safe passage in and out of neighborhoods and start to lose some of those guys to gun violence when I was a, when I was a teen. And um, it's sort of hard to talk about and probably, you know, shapes you and honestly scars you in some ways, in some, some pretty tough ways. And fast forward to uh, our time at CPS and, you know, happy to talk about successes, happy to talk about things that got better and know how hard your wife is working and others. And, you know, love, love to go to that. But on, on my watch during my seven and a half years in Chicago public schools, on average, we had a, a child, a student killed every two weeks due to gun violence. This is just a devastating devastating level of loss and you know all the things that you know you need to feel academic achievement and budgets and operations and labor management all that stuff that's you know important i don't want to say that's easy but all that stuff was way way easier than going to those funerals and going to a classroom where there was an empty desk and going to meet families 99 of the time after they had just lost their you know young son or daughter my wife and i had two young kids at the time and just couldn't couldn't imagine. And uh, just got harder and harder. And in hindsight, very naively, when we, when we uh, left to go to D.C. in 2009, actually thought things couldn't get any worse in Chicago. I thought we were rock bottom. And then for a whole host of reasons, things got a lot worse in, in the seven years we were in D.C. So coming back, Chicago has given me everything, you know, educationally, athletically, socially, culturally, whatever. For me, coming home and not dealing or not trying to deal with this crisis, I just couldn't sort of live with myself. And I often say that we're, we're motivated by our successes, but we're also haunted by our failures. And I don't think I know that we as adults, we as leaders, we fail to keep our kids safe. And it's not right and it's not fair. And they're growing up with a level of fear and trauma that's just totally unacceptable. So it was interesting. I, I've done 10 years of CPS and seven years in DC. So 17 years straight in government. That's a long time. And coming back as a private citizen, I'm trying to think, how do you make a contribution? And I'm pretty radical. I would love to get rid of all the guns or as many guns as possible. We have way, way too many guns. People talk about gun laws. I always say Chicago has some really strict gun laws, but we're right next to Indiana. The guns right. pour into our you know, pour into our neighborhoods uh, from you know, 30 miles, 30 minutes, you know, south, south of us. And, uh, you know, we're trying to help, you know, police and community rebuild trust. But the truth is that they're, I always say they're amazing, amazing individual police officers. And we work with many of them. But, but structurally, trust between the police and the community is broken. So very few crimes get solved. And so you have way too many guns and you have no one feeling safe. So that everyone's carrying a gun to protect themselves. So the question is, what can you do as a Again, as a private citizen, the only thing I could think to do is to give guys a reason to put down the guns and give them a sense of hope. And so I spent a lot of time you know, going to Cook County Jail, talking to guys there, talking to guys on the street, and uh, just, just trying to listen and hear. And, you know, what uh, this work is, it's, a, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's sometimes, honestly, the most heartbreaking, and, uh, but also the most inspiring. And learning so many lessons, but the biggest thing, and we can, we can get into Billy more specifically, but the biggest thing I'm learning is, is not to judge. And guys made some, some choices. I don't want to call them bad choices. They made choices at 12 or 13 or 14 that they felt they had to make. Um, one guy told me, I, I just got tired of hearing my mother cry at night and I had to go do something. And uh, another guy said, you know, he said, Arnie, I grew up in a household full of guns. I wish we would have had some toys. And um, grew up in a household full of guns and, 
he became a, he became a shooter. And so just working with these young men who are most likely to shoot and be shot, and we all know that the profile, that's the same, that's the same guy. Um, doing a whole host of things, educational piece. We've had over 100 guys get high school diplomas. We have guys starting college now. Uh, again, the clinical piece, helping on the, on the trauma is, is so important. We have amazing life coaches, people like Billy Moore. We do hard and soft skills. We sort of help guys transition from the streets to the legal economy. And um, what they always say is these men, I don't see them as the problem. I see them as the solution. We have to walk with them. We have to learn from them and continue to grow. And we started three years ago in 2016 when things were really at its worst point in terms of violence. And we've had three years of double-digit reductions in shootings and homicides. So we're really proud of that progress, really pleased. So, as you know, we have a heck of a long way to go. And the start of this year hasn't been great. The start of this year, we're actually up. Yep. So we're, we're doubling down on some things and you know, really working. We have amazing street outreach uh, uh, workers and great partners doing that. So we're, we're putting a lot more boots on the ground now, even during this time. Um, but I just think we got to, these men have to lead our city to a, to a safer place. And I just want to give our kids back their childhood, just give them a chance to play and go to the park and go to this corner store. And I don't, you know, I don't think it's asking too much. So we got a lot of hard work ahead of us. Absolutely. Uh, now going back in, in, into your childhood, we growing up on the South side of Chicago. Uh, can you just let everybody know what that was like for you? And then I want to get into some basketball. <laughs> we got to talk basketball for sure. It's hard to separate South Side of Chicago because it was for me. It was like in the in the in the late seventies, early eighties, and I grew up in a Bronzeville community. Yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> it was like either you you played basketball or you you carried a gun. You played yeah, basketball yeah. or or you game bang. You you went yeah. skating or you ran a street. It was like one or the other. It was hard yeah. to live a life where you were in between. You had to make a decision. Yeah. And if you didn't make a decision, that decision was going to be made for you. So what yeah. was it like for you growing up on the south side of Chicago? Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, as a, as, a, as a kid, you don't sort of realize it's just your life. It's just sort of normal. You don't realize it's maybe a little bit different than most and not better or worse, just just different. And uh, I live in Hyde Park. I live two, you know, two blocks from where I grew up. It's so good to be be back home. And uh, my dad was a professor at the University of Chicago, so that, that influence was strong. And I was born in 64, and my sister's born in 67, my brother in 70. And in 1961, my mother started a, a tutoring program at uh, 46 in Greenwood. And it's honestly, it's less than two miles from our house. We used to walk there some days. We grew up at 56th Street. This was on 46th Street. But in those days, 47th Street was the invisible barrier between you know, integrated middle-class Hyde Park and all black, all poor North Kenwood, Oakland. So we just grew up going to her program, you know, all our lives. We'd wait, you know, we'd go to after school program and wait before I went to real, real school. And it just had this unbelievably formative impact on my sister and brother and I. My mother did that work for 52 years until her, uh, until her health gave out. Unfortunately, she has Alzheimer's now. And my sister and brother and I have all tried to follow in her footsteps in, in, in different ways. And just what I saw is that, you know, my friends during the school day versus my friends in the afternoon, my friends in the afternoon were as smart, as talented, as committed, as resilient as my friends during the school day but just didn't have the, the same opportunities, you know, in terms of safety, in terms of education, in terms of, you know, protection from violence, in terms of, you know, food. And my mother was, you know, trying to stand in that gap and, you know, unbelievable stories, but um, it, it just, the, the fundamental unfairness there. And her whole philosophy was, 
you know, 10 year olds taught five year olds and 15 year olds taught 10 year olds. So we all grew up, you know, teaching and being taught. And you know, I got a million stories. But I'll just tell you one, the young man that taught my group of, uh, of young guys coming up, uh, Mike Clark Duncan was actually in our group who you guys have probably, probably heard of. And um, was a guy named Kerry Holly. So Kerry Holly was like a big brother to us. He probably taught us for six or eight years. He uh, went to Kenwood, went to DePaul, went to law school. So he, he stayed with us. We weren't an easy group. And I, um, I was writing my, my book when I was done. I went back to interview him. And uh, you know, I thought I knew everything about him. And um, he said, have I ever told you my birth, my birth story? I said, no, I don't think you have. And I knew he was raised by his grandmother. I knew he never met his father. I knew his mother ran the streets. You know, we knew all that. That was, I don't say, you know, that's pretty typical. That wasn't anything different. What he told me was that when he was born, his grandmother, I'm not sorry, his mother wrapped him in, in newspaper and threw him in the garbage. Wow. And his, his, his grandmother took him out of the garbage and raised him. And he went on to work for IBM, has traveled the world, has you know, international patents. And he literally started his life in a, in a garbage can. And because my mother and others were in his life, you know, he's done these extraordinary things. And I just think about how much talent in all of our communities that starts in a tough spot or maybe even starts in a garbage, in a garbage can that says nothing about what they have to contribute to, to, uh, to our communities and into the world. And so just trying to, you know, in everything I've done, trying to bring opportunity to uh, places where it's, it's absent, trying to bring hope uh, where it's absent. Um, that's, that's, that's what I learned from my mother. And I always say, I, you know, I know what's possible because I've seen, I could, you know, I have so many stories of, you know, by all the, the stats or all the myths or all the stereotypes, young men and women who shouldn't have been able to do anything. They've done unbelievable things just because they had a chance. And I always thought, you know, my mother just had a set of kids from sort of, you know, 46, 45th, 43rd. I think about the kids, you know, they're on 39th or 31st yeah. or where, where you lived and maybe didn't have those opportunities. And, uh, that's uh that's my that's my motivation. That's 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 always been my motivation. Yeah, and, and I think that motivation, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, it, it, it's like the greatest work that we do and and the greatest satisfaction of being fulfilled when we hear the positive stories, but it's also the most heartbreaking, heart aching things that we have to go when we have to go to the funerals, right? So yeah, it's this balance of both. Yeah. And it's just for me, it's just I try and you know it's just real. And you, I try not to get too highs of the high and too lows of the low. And you got to be able to, to handle and deal with both. And I'll say that the losses don't get easier. Um, the, you know, they get honestly harder and you, you can't let it break you, but you try and I also try not to run away from it. I try and feel all that pain and yeah. all that, that sorrow and then try and use that as motivation to, to how we get, you know, how do we get smarter? How do we get better? How do we, how do we help more and um, try and use it as, as, as fuel, but it's, um, you, you can't feel it as somehow you deny it or you get numb to it. Um, that's when things get pretty scary. And so I never, I don't like hurting, but I never, the day I get numb is the day I'm going to get real, uh, real worried. I don't, I don't want to be in that spot. That's yes, not, sir. that's not, it's not a healthy or safe place to be. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I want to talk a little bit about your transition, right? Being the CEO of Chicago Public Schools. Um, and then if you can just add in your relationship with President Obama, because obviously you served in the White House with him. Uh, but yeah, talk a little bit about your passion for education and how did you get involved with it and uh, just your journey from CEO to Secretary of Education? 
you know, I'll try and back it up and, and be pretty quick. So after college, I played uh, professionally overseas in Australia for four years and then came back and started an I Have a Dream program where we started with a group of kids at uh, sixth grade at Shakespeare Elementary School, which was right across the street from where our mother's program was in the church basement. Did that work with my sister for six years. And during that time, we actually started our own small public school, Aerial Community Academy. It's now 20 years old, which is crazy. <laughs> Again, we're all getting older, but uh, it wasn't a good elementary school. And when our kids are from our I Have a Dream class were graduating from high school going on to college, I was sort of thinking about what do I do next? And we thought about, you know, another, another class of dreamers. There are 40 kids in that class. Is Aerial Community Academy grew. That's a, it's a small public school. Um, that was going to have 400. And then I thought about the Chicago Public Schools, and that had 400,000. Just the math of it, from 40 to 400 to 400,000. And I'll be real honest, for most of my life, um, the public schools were a little bit the enemy because in, in the neighborhood where we were, the schools weren't, they weren't great. They weren't serving kids well. And my mother and her team always trying to do sort of a three o'clock at eight o'clock at night, what wasn't happening during the school day. As I sort of sat back and thought, I said, it's sort of easy to critique. It's easy to throw stones from the outside. It's a different thing to roll up your sleeves and try and go inside and try and take some of the things I had learned, you know, from my mother from starting school and see, could you have impact, you know, not on a block and not on a neighborhood, but, but at scale in, in the city. And so, um, Went in and, uh, you know, two and a half years later, I was you know, 36 years old, was picked to run CPS. And that was never my ambition. That was never my dream. That was never the goal. It was obviously just an extraordinary opportunity. And I love that work. And I, um, my goal was to do 10 years as superintendent. It's sort of crazy. If you look across the, the country, superintendents don't last. It's usually like two years, 2.5 years. So when I started, I was obviously the youngest. And then seven years later, I was literally the longest serving big city urban superintendent in the country. And that, that was crazy to me. You can't have this constant wow. turn. hard to get, get better. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, connected the dots. I grew, grew up playing basketball. We can talk about that. And one of the guys I grew up playing with was uh, Craig Robinson. And Craig Robinson was Michelle's you know, older brother. And, uh, you know, first time I met Brock, that was, you know, Craig's little sister's boyfriend. That's, 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 <laughs> so we knew, knew him as, and, you know, we played some together and over time he you know, went into the you know, Illinois legislature and we did some, some education work together, visited schools together. And then he went to the Illinois Senate and then, you know, it's like, you know, once in a, once in a lifetime lightning strikes and, uh, your friend becomes president of the United States. Nobody would have thought that was possible. Or could happen, and uh, I would say I got a lot of friends I wouldn't move my family for. <laughs> and uh, but, um, and I'll say real honestly, I didn't go for the job, I didn't go for the title. Um, I knew his heart, um, I knew his commitment, I knew what he had been through. Father abandoned him, you know, when he was born, came into his life for like a month when he was 10 or 11 years old, disappeared again. Um, I knew Michelle's family really well, great parents, strong parents. But not had been to college. You know, she and her brother, Craig, were first-gen college goers. So education just wasn't some issue for them. It was personal. It, you know, it came from their hearts. And to, to go and be part of this team, I hated to leave Chicago. I hated not being able to do 10 years. Um, honestly, had anybody else asked where I didn't have that personal connection and trust and friendship, I honestly would have said no. Mm. Um, but the chance to, you know, to serve in that historic administration and you know, try and make that team better and try and, you know, be a good teammate to him. 
and to try and again take what my mother started with 50 kids to you know 400 CPS to 52 million children across the country. Wow! To try and get those lessons, um, it was a it was a chance of a lifetime, and I would you know it was hard, it was all that. I would, I would do it all again tomorrow, and I traveled to all 50 states and uh, you know visited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of schools, and you know I can tell you so many stories, and I probably visited more schools across the country. Honestly, probably maybe than anybody during that time. You know, I thought I knew, I thought I knew poverty. I thought I knew challenge. I thought I knew violence. You know, here, but I'd never been to a Native American reservation before. Mm. And you do that, and it's a whole different level. And um, I try to do a lot of that. I go back every year and speak at uh, tribal graduations. And it really, uh, you know, rural America, Appalachia. Um, you know, families that have had you know, five generations working the coal mines, and now there's no more, you know, no more coal coal workers, and just yeah. seeing the devastation in those communities. So it it just you learn you learn amazing things, you learn hard stuff, and the struggle is struggle. You know, for me, the struggle yeah. largely been in the black community here, but whether it's Native American, whether it's rural white, um, spent time on the border of Mexico with you know obviously Latino population, seeing that um, it, it, it really the there are definitely some differences, but the commonalities are so much bigger that cut through race and, mm. and geography. And just to, to have that awareness, to have that understanding. For me, I can read stuff, but I need to see it and feel it to really understand it. To have that chance, it, you know, unbelievable, unbelievable. What was the thing in all of your experiences, um, whether being CEO uh, whether it's starting a school, uh, Ariel, or Shakespeare, um, or traveling around to every state in America, really doing a deep dive on the conditions of people. What's one of the biggest takeaways for you? Um, have you been able to like really process kind of like that whole span of time? Uh, and if so, what, I mean, what's, what's some of the biggest takeaways you would share? Yeah, I mean, there's so many lessons and you're still learning. I just say a couple. One, again, despite the obstacles, despite the poverty, despite all that, we just have amazing, amazing kids everywhere. And just hearing kids' stories and what they're overcoming and what they're accomplishing, what they're doing to get to school every day and how serious they are, it blows me away. You know, I, I had, growing up, I had a roof over my head. I had food every day. I had two educated parents it was a given that I was going to walk to school every day. It was a given that my sister and brother and I would go to college. That's not, that's not the norm. That's not typical. And just getting a sense for kids, just remarkable resilience and commitment to uh, improving their lives and getting their education um, always, always moves me. And I always say that, you know, great teachers matter. Great educators stepping in, great counselors, great social workers um, that see things in kids that they can't even see in themselves, that see that talent, that see that ability that, you know, my mother saw something in Carrie Holly that maybe he saw, maybe he wasn't aware of, but she identified him as a leader really early. And the rest is sort of history. And we have teachers and social workers and counselors uh, just doing heroic work every day. And obviously, particularly now during this pandemic, and then you're living this, I always say, I, I went to hundreds and hundreds of schools. I've never been to a great school that didn't have a great principal. Mm. And your, your wife's a principal and leadership matters in education It matters in government and matters in politics It matters in sports It matters, matters in business. And that literally every great school I went to 
had a great principle. And they can have different styles and different, you know, different ways of doing that, but great principles attract talent, they retain that talent, they nurture that talent, they build a learning community. And um, I mean, I just, I got so many examples, but I'll just give you one. I went to, um, went to Baltimore after the uh, Freddie Gray riots. Yep. And there was, um, there was an amazing school, uh, Liberty Elementary, that you know, I was looking at the data, the numbers, and they had, for years, were just doing way, way, way better than, quote, unquote, they should have been given their geography. And they were right there at the heart of that. And kids outperforming, not just other kids in Baltimore, but outperforming kids in the, in the suburbs. And I, you know, so I just, I got to go see this and saw things that you would expect an amazing, amazing principal, um, remarkably committed teachers and educators. And then I um, saw something I hadn't expected. They had turned the school into a food bank mm. and they were giving out something like uh, 9,000 pounds of meal uh, of, of food a month, amazing. a staggering amount of food. And that's not in any principal's job description. You don't learn that anywhere, but they had figured out that their community needed food. And I can't prove to you that the fact that they were feeding people were leading to these academic results, but I know there's a, there's a line there. And so that kind of leadership, that kind of creativity of just, just figuring it out. And um, I go back to my mother. I remember my brother all the time we just did it would just bring kids home, kids, kids clothes home and wash them and bring it back the next day. And nobody said anything, but if, you know, you just, you just have to figure things out. You have to problem solve. And where you have, you know, schools as, you know, food distribution centers, where you have schools doing really creative things to take care of kids and build a sense of community and create that safe haven. Um, that's what I saw. That's what I learned. And so I, I, I always know what's possible. I know how hard it is. I know all the challenges. But I also know what's possible. You have that kind of remarkable uh, commitment and leadership from the adults in, in any school. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, you know, I kind of want to shift gears just a little bit because I believe like every time I see you, you are like the epitome of Chicago, like just your toughness, your wits, um, just your ability to go into any room and be your authentic self. That's what I see every time. Like I get the vibe from you. Um, but playing basketball, like in some of what I call the golden years of Chicago street ball back in those days, Terry Cummings and Tim Hardaway yeah. and the Benji Wilson's of the world. And people got to really understand like the doc rivers, like all of, all of these guys that we hear about is so many other people that we haven't heard about. Right. But you, you were right in the thick of things, Arnie holding your own out there, getting the respect on the street ball side. What's some things that you learned about being a Chicagoan back then and then just like, can you tell us some stories that a lot of people probably don't even know about, like that you yeah. experienced firsthand? Well, a lot of, a lot of stories, but I'll, I'll start. So <laughs> my mother's program was, it was funny. It was at a church and we had a gym on the first floor and the classrooms on the second floor. So we always had to do the academic work first and we were done. We'd go downstairs. And for years, I don't know why we played kick baseball. So for a lot of years, we played, I don't, I don't even, know, even know what kick baseball is. So yes, that's sir. When you kick the ball and you ran the bases and kick it onto the stage. That was a home run. We tried not to break the lights. And we played that for years. And then at some point, I don't even remember when, when I was like 10 or 11, we realized we were in the gym. We stopped playing kick baseball. We started playing basketball. And so I learned to play. And it just was a funny thing. I grew up, the group of guys that were in my group that Kerry Holly was teaching, 
Most of them were two or three or four years older than me. So I was the youngest and the smallest. And uh, you had people, and unfortunately, these three have all passed. So, you know, Michael Clark Duncan, who could, who could really play. You had to Daryl Ford, who went to Dunbar as a point guard there, came after Ryan Lester. You had Ron, uh, Ron Ragland, you know, great guard at King. And just every day I grew up playing with them and learning and being the youngest and the smallest and the worst for years and, you know, getting whooped. But that it was like a perfect – I was thinking about had I been the oldest guy playing with younger kids, I probably wouldn't have gotten much better. It just sort of worked out. That uh, you know, we'd go at it, and then we started to bring in. You know, we had our own little team. We'd bring in teams from the outside to play us, and we'd have you know battles. You know, guys from King and Dunbar and Phillips, that you know those those crews. And then when I started got to 13, 14, 15, then I started to go out into the neighborhoods and, and play, and you know played in all the tournaments. You know, South and West Sides and you know, YBI. And that was that was amazing, and. Um, yeah, and you know all those guys. Timmy's a good, good friend. You know, saw, saw him. You know, saw him recently. I remember talking to people saying like he's going to be a pro. I mean, I, you know, you could see stuff. And he he was he wasn't a big name coming out of school, and uh, you could see what was possible. Um, Talk about Doc Rivers. I mean, this is crazy. I remember a summer league game where, where Doc Rivers came off the bench for the other team. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> he came <laughs> off the bench. He was like the sixth day of Reggie Theus and I think Ricky Sobers at that time. <laughs> you know, I'm out there starting. I was playing to Maurice Cheeks. It's me and Maurice uh, uh, playing. And, you know, I'm like, look at Doc Rivers coming off the bench and what are we doing? Um, Terry Cummings, I mean, my first summer league game, um, this was at, we played a lot of years at uh, Chicago State and then uh, Deal South, but actually started at Triton. And the first summer league game was against, um, it was like Terry and uh, Isaiah and, and Mark Aguirre. And we were a bunch of high school kids. And I think, I don't know if we were up, it was either tied or we were up two or four and a half. And one of our guys, I won't say his name, <laughs> he comes off at halftime and starts talking. <laughs> and I remember Mark just said, young fella, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and we go up wow. the second, we go up the second half and just get massacred. <laughs> wow. Never forgot that lesson. <laughs> You're riding high. Um, and then I shift and I'll, we keep going on basketball. I'll come back on Benji. But honestly, I always say I went to some great, great schools, amazing schools. So lucky for that. But for me, the basketball court has always been my best classroom. And I've learned so much more, you know, how to read character, who to trust, who not to trust. I had people who I might not know their name, but I knew I could literally trust my life to them. And I had other people I knew well that I knew I had to, be real careful and watch myself. And, you know, it's funny. You go to DC and you got this whole security team, this apparatus. I'm like, I don't need it now. I need it back. <laughs> I know that's right. But, uh, but you didn't want, you know, you needed, you learn how to, you learn how to read character. You learn who to trust and who not to. And you do that to survive and all the things of, you know, there are times when I'm a bit of star and the times I'm the you know, last guy on the team. I've been cut from plenty of teams. And, you know, as you know, you play outside the streets, you just got to win. You just got to win. And if you don't win, then you're sitting you know, for two or three hours. And, uh, you know, so I, you know, I was never the fastest. I was never the best athlete, but I learned how to win. And then if you know how to win, you get picked up and you get to stay out of court and get to play all day. And so those, those lessons, um, again, blessed to go to some great schools, but that's, um, that, that's, that's home for me. And I, you know, still, still try and hang, hang out out there as much as I can. Um, that, that's, that's my, that's my comfort zone. That's where I'm, I'm happiest. 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you you mentioned his name, but I I, I definitely want people to understand. You know, guys like Benji Wilson are once in a lifetime opportunities, and uh, you know, I'm 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 very cordial with Tim Hardaway as well, and, and like I mentioned earlier, Billy Moore and. Everybody that watched the documentary know that story. Um, but what was it like for you to actually um, be around during that time to physically see and be around his spirit that a lot of people probably don't understand, you know, cause you can yeah. watch a documentary and kind of get a, a broad idea of a person and the potential that he had. But what do you remember about Benji? Yeah, this is so deep. This connects directly to what we're doing now. But, um, you know, I grew up playing with, uh, with with Benji's son. He was a little bit older. And actually, if you look at the documentary, at the very start of it, I'm actually in there. It's a clip of people playing, you know, and, and you know, it's actually YBI. I'm, you know, I'm, the, I'm the white guy there. And um, I was two years older and he was killed in 1984. I graduated in 82. So I actually remember where I was in my dorm room when I got the call that he had been killed. And it was... Um, shattering it was shattering and in a whole bunch of re- you know he wasn't the best basketball player in chicago he was the best basketball player in the country and i was using vr magic our bird our our whatever and you know six eight point guard i mean just you know just un- unbelievable and we had always felt you sort of said you were either a ball player or you were on the streets we always felt that you know we saw some crazy stuff and neighborhoods could be tough but the community always gave us unbelievable respect. And I just, I never, I mean, I, no one ever touched me ever. I'm always so thankful and so grateful. And part of what I do now trying to give back is a way of saying thanks to these neighborhoods that I could have been hurt any day, anytime, anywhere, and never, never, nothing, nothing but, you know, respect and, and, uh, and care and concern. And so that when Benji got killed, that shattered that, uh, that perception that somehow we had safe passage that we could just move mm. and, and do whatever. And um, I didn't know Billy Moore, never met him, basically hated him the rest of my life. And um, I watched the documentary like everybody else. And when they, when they went to the interview with him, honestly, I, I turned it off. I couldn't even, I couldn't even watch. Mm. And um you know, this again, this is our, you know, life is, is complicated. There's a lot of gray and, and, and it's, it's complex. Fast forward to a couple summers ago, um, I'm actually doing a peace march out in, in Auburn Gresham. And one of my guys says, um, do you know who Billy Moore is? I'm like, yeah, I know who Billy Moore is. He says he's out here and he'd like to, to meet you. Mm. And um, I didn't quite know what to say. So I said, okay. And we basically walked and talked during that, that peace march. Wow. And hearing his story and hearing his side of what happened and hearing what he went through and how he's devoted his life to giving back um, blew me away, blew me away. And um, Billy Moore worked with one of our amazing partners, Iman, and now actually is on my team now. And, He's one of our best, most valuable employees, and he is, uh, you know, devoted his life to reducing violence. And we always say, you know, experience can be the best teacher, but it doesn't have to be your experience. And he's saving lives every single day. And um, I've, you know, I've learned so much, you know, from him, and you know how to 
you know, myself, how to, uh, how to forgive, um, how to, uh, you know, show love and whatever success we're going to have is, is going to be because of Billy Moore and others like him, uh, stepping into that gap and, and helping out. Um, very tragically, two summers ago, his son was killed. His son was shot 16 times in Foster Park. And I played at Foster Park, you know, most Saturdays for, you know, I don't know, 25, 30 years now. His, his son was shot 16 times. That was his only son. And uh, what Billy says, and I believe him, is that if the young man who killed his son came into our program, he would mentor him. He would take him under his wing and work with him that he can't ask for forgiveness and reconciliation, redemption, if he can't give it. And honestly, that for me, it's just, I get the chills just saying it, it blows me away. And if, if someone killed my son or daughter, you know, could I, could I have the, the humanity or the compassion to, to accept or forgive and bring them in? And I, sitting here today, I can't honestly say I could do that. So here's a guy who all my life I hated, who was a villain, who he's actually teaching me He's instructing me about humanity. And um, because you're from Chicago, I'll be real, real here. We basically know who killed his son. Like, we we know who did it. And it'd be all kind of, you know, people reach out to Billy. You don't have to do anything. Let us take care of it for you. You know, let us us handle your business for you. Mm. And Billy's like, no, you know, don't don't do that. And so this is a a complicated, complicated world. And... um, so that, that whole story, it's just, it almost like epitomizes both the, the heart, as what you said, sort of the heartbreak of Chicago, but also the, the hope and the, and the redemption and what's, and what's possible. And I, we, can't, we can't win this fight against violence. We can't create a better, a safer city um, if we don't have a lot more Billy Moores uh, stepping up and devoting their lives to, to giving back. And I see every day the impact that he has on our young guys. We all have different roles to play. There are things he can say and experiences that he can share that I can't begin to share. We always want to have people around us who have different skills and different experiences and he can relate to things and some crazy stuff happened in jail and they were going to, you know, they were going to kill him and have him sign a suicide note, like all kinds of just how you, you know, just the the real, the real, real, the real reality of of what happened there Um, to hear him talk to the young guys is, um, is profound and it's invaluable. Yeah. And, and I, I was there during all-star weekend uh, with the other sides of the gun, the uh, documentary watch with uh, yeah. uh, Benji's brothers, you, yeah. you Common, um, as well as uh, Billy Moore, yeah. sat down, yeah. and it's one of those one of those experiences where I feel like needs to be mandatory in the educational system um, yeah. on so many different levels, and I really wish like the whole urban America could have sat down in that particular room just because you don't always hear stories of reconciliation and redemption. You just don't always, especially at a very high scale like that one. Um, and then full circle guys are able to sit on the same stage. And as you were talking, you were talking about the peace March. It's like you were there marching for peace and yet your personal peace came in a way you probably didn't anticipate with you meeting Billy Moore and now you guys are working together. It's just amazing to me how all of the work that we do, whether big or small is so interconnected, you know, and and that's why I really appreciate Billy Moore. I appreciate you for giving Billy Moore the space and and the opportunity to, you know, reconcile the relationship with y'all two, too. 
Yeah, so that, that reconciliation and Charles Johnson, our, our, our friend, worked on that. And it was 34 years to the day that, uh, that Billy killed Benji. And he had talked to the brothers for a couple of years. And we sat down that, that night and it was a four hour conversation. <laughs> it was, the, you know, probably, you know, the most moving evening in my life. And it was <laughs> real and raw and it almost went haywire a couple of times. But um, at the end of it, uh, you know, one, one of Benji's brothers said, you know, you, you know, you took our older brother from us and, and now you have to be our older brother. And it's just, um, it, it's, it's on all sides just to see that happen. As you know, so much of the violence here in Chicago is driven by retaliation. Everybody trying to get their lick back. And, um, you know, what, that's what we're trying to teach our guys is that, I say, I've been to a lot of funerals. I've never seen anybody rise from the dead. You know, I've never seen anybody come up. And I, all I see is a lot of you know, young kids, you know, crying and, and the heartbreak of, of, of family and loved ones. And so if we can teach that, re, that reconciliation, we can teach that forgiveness. Um, we take that and we, I, I would love, like I said, to get it into every high school, to get it, you know, here in Chicago and other places. Um, the lessons are so, so yeah. real and profound and, and human. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I, I kind of want to close out with, I've been asking all of the guests that if you had the opportunity to have a billboard and had any words on it where millions of billions of people would actually see it, what words would you have and why? Wow, I've never asked that question before. I'm, I'm not good at marketing, so I won't have a good one. Um, so I'll, I'll cheat a couple, couple words: uh, love, hope, opportunity, uh, our common humanity. And I think again, this pandemic is just again demonstrating to all of us how interconnected we all are, and that you know none of us are, are safe, none of us are immune. We all have to take care of each other. So finding that common humanity and whether it's, you know, within the, you know, guys here in Chicago, unfortunately, who grow up together and are, you know, live two blocks from each other and end up, you know, trying to, trying to shoot each other, whether it's that, whether it's across racial divides, whether it's across geographic divides here in Chicago, I'm sorry, across the country, you know, urban versus rural, whatever. Um, but I've also had experience to travel. I've been to Kenya, worked there a little bit went to a, a refugee camp in Jordan for Syrian refugees, again, the Native American experiences. And um, again, I've been blessed to, to really not just read about or study, but, but to feel, to feel that common humanity. And um, I guess that's, that's, the, that's the message I want people to, to feel and to understand. And if you understand that, I think it makes you behave and act and, and treat people in very different ways. So uh, I, I wanted to ask about the Michael Jordan and the last dance. What are your thoughts on that? And just like the historical context of what Michael Jordan meant to our city. Uh, did you get a chance to meet or play against Michael Jordan? And just kind of what are your overall thoughts on the last dance? Yeah, it's been amazing to watch and played with him a fair amount. It was a lot of fun coming out of college, uh, worked out there at the, uh, the Berto Center, uh, he was a year or two ahead of us. It was the year Scotty Pippen. We both came out the same year in 87. That's when I was you know, trying to go pro here and just you know, seeing where he was, seeing how good, you know, I, I knew Pippen was going to be good. I didn't know how good he was going to be. Just seeing that raw talent was, was unreal. Another story people don't know is that when Michael played baseball and then was starting to come back early, early on, um, we were working out sort of every day together. And, you know, he was real rusty and a little bit out of shape. And it was fun. You know, for a while, we were, you know, sort of battling. You just see how quickly he was getting better and better and better. <laughs> so I was a good practice dummy for a little while, and he just uh, he passed <laughs> by uh, pre 
pretty quickly. Um, but just, uh, you know, did he do everything perfectly? No. Was he human? Absolutely. But just that will to win and what it takes to be that successful. And, you know, like I said, nobody, nobody likes to lose. Nobody wants to lose. But very few people are willing to do what it takes to win. And seeing, you know, seeing his work ethic behind the scenes, seeing his charisma, his ability to, to challenge people to move on, um, just again, you know, these, you know, how, you know, how lucky to be just a, a tiny, tiny part of that, that journey, more than anything, to be, a, to be a fan and what he did for the city. And you know, it was obviously a, beyond, a, beyond a gift. And uh, uh, so lucky, lucky to be a Chicagoan during that time and lucky to have a chance to, to play some with him. All right, and last question. Give me your top five greatest NBA players of all time. Oh man, you give me these lists. I'm no good at it. Huh? <laughs> you gotta go. You gotta go, Kareem. You gotta go, Magic. Uh, you gotta go old school. You gotta go, Bill Russell. And um, I guess you get Michael. So that's that's quick. You know, you know, LeBron maybe at some point down the road. You know, Kobe being that mix, but. If you're really going to force me six to five, that'd be my top five right now. Yeah, I think that's my top five as well. So you're right on it, Arnie. Well, thank you so much, sir, for joining the Born to Win podcast. Uh, We definitely appreciate your time. And we're going to chop this up and we're going to get it out to our viewing audiences. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Shoot to get done. And thanks for all your leadership. Really appreciate it. Tell your wife, I appreciate what she's doing every day. I know how hard it is. Absolutely. And same to your family. Stay safe, Arnie. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to the Born to Win podcast. Would you consider making a donation to Champs? We are looking to provide senior class care packages and other essential items like food, hygiene, and toiletries for the families of our Champs mentees. You can donate via Cash App at dollar sign Champs Mentoring or PayPal at paypal.me slash Champs Mentoring. Or you can always visit our webpage, ChampsMentoring.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. Champs, all in, champs, all in, champs, all in, all in. Every setback is a setup for greatness. Every failure is a ladder towards greatness. Every goal is applied towards my greatness. Every life experience enhances my greatness. Every task perfects my greatness. The divine guides my greatness. I am, I am, I am greatness. In the making, in the making, champs all in.